0: And we are back with another exciting 0.5 mini episode of Radio versus the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis.
1: And I'm Casey Doran.
0: And this is a very special episode.
1: A very special episode.
0: It's not going to be one about the creepy guy at the bike store. <laughs> and uh, Nancy Reagan is not going to come to tell you to stop taking drugs.
1: No one's going to get in a car accident and have a tearful goodbye.
0: This is going to be a very special episode. How? We are going to tell you later. But first, it's time to look at your answers to the question that we pose to you as part of Radio versus the Mailbag.
1: Remind us, Mike, what was that question that we asked?
0: So we wanted to know, what was the turning point that pushed geek culture into the mainstream of popular culture? We put that question to you. We heard from you on our website. We heard from you on Facebook. A lot of really interesting answers this time around. But first, we actually talked to our panelists, Sam Mulvey and Rosalind Townsend, about what they thought about this question. Here's what they had to say.
2: I'm going with the internet, and I'm going from personal experience here because the internet was the turning point for me personally to get into geek culture. I think that's the one thing that kind of connected everybody, whether you had an obscure fandom or a video game or you wanted to look something up or download something, the internet would be pretty much the thing that I would argue.
3: I sort of have to agree. I mean, in my personal history, uh, I've been online for a long time, and there was sort of a transition from what are those weird things are you doing from with those computers... You crazy weird person! Mm. I, you're oh horrible nerd! Get, get the fuck out! In high school, it slowly transitioned to like in freshman year, it was okay. Get the fuck out! To senior year, which was wait, you know how the internet works? Cool. Can you tell me this? And I think the internet has a lot to do with the rise of geek culture. And I don't think this one's going to die. I don't think this is just going to no, be a fad. It's not a that's passing gonna, fad. No. Because I don't think geek culture is anything. I don't think geek culture is a thing. I don't know. I mean, clearly there's a market for it. But what we're seeing is sort of a hyper fragmentation of the market. And I think what geek culture is, is you can't package something and then just assume that everybody is going to consume it the way it used to. And that, I think, is essentially what geek culture is, the way we describe it.
2: I would argue that geek culture has become kind of a fossilized term. Yeah. Because it was something that might have been pertinent back 10, 20 years ago when people would go, Oh, you're into probably Star Trek, Star Wars, two or three other things. You are a geek, and this is what defines you as a geek. And again, when the internet showed up, you weren't alone. And like you said, freshman year to senior year, between those two years, you started to figure out that it might have been Star Trek or Star Wars or any sort of other pop culture thing that other people would recognize, but then it got more and more into like a niche, and then people could go, yeah, there's a corner of the interweb that is for me.
3: I think it's an outmoded term, but I think even back then... Yeah. I mean, what are the genetic markers for a geek? I guess would be my question. What things you you see, one this, that, and the other, and you go, okay, that person's a geek.
2: Initially, there was a series of genetic markers. That was my point. And I'm
3: at, what and were those?
2: Probably liking something that, hell, I don't know. Would you consider it mainstream? It's hard to describe. I would think the genetic markers of a geek would include, t's, ugh, I don't know. I can't think of anything. That's kind of my point,
3: is the, the geek thing I don't think is, it's a modality more than it is a type or more than it is an allegiance is like the, now it is I, I think yeah. it's kind of always been that way
2: though really okay. yeah
3: and honestly talking with Mike kind of opened my eyes to this a lot of the ways is the sort of the heart of it isn't what you're into but how deep you are into it and I think what the internet really brought to it is now you you had a community no matter what you liked mm-hmm. back in the web 1.0 days there was a fan fiction site for a cartoon called the Road Rovers. <laughs> Like, there was a committed group of people who were into this cartoon about dogs solving crimes. (laughs) That is not something that could have existed five years before that. We're talking, like, early 2000s.
2: It probably existed in a form, but the first thing that it harkens back to, that I'm thinking, that wasn't connected to the internet was fanzines. And you were doing that for snail mail. Well, no, but
3: fanzines were... if You had to have a certain, you know, inertia already. Like, everybody knows that nerds like Star Trek, so Star Trek fanzines were easy. mm -hmm. Everybody liked Doctor Who, so Doctor Who conventions in Chicago were easy. Road Rovers? Like six people watch that. <laughs> Nobody's doing a Road Rovers fanzine. Space Cases? Nobody watched that.
2: Well, Space if Cases. If we're gonna get don't...
3: all personal here. Yeah,
2: man. you you don't want to get me started.
3: <laughs> no, I'm kind of hoping to. That's kind of well, the whole point. Well, Space
2: Cases actually had a print fanzine in the early they days. They did. Yeah. And do you do
3: you have copies of it? I'd love to see that.
2: I think I do. But okay. it's like compilations of fan fiction and fan art. And right, right, right. I was 12. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I think is, is it's... um Prior exposure of whatever medium you're into yeah. as well. Like Road Rovers probably didn't have a big fan base connected to other things already.
3: But it's really cool to be really into something now, which is what... Mike described as being a geek and that's kind of I've just sort of bought his explanation mm-hmm. because it's really the only one that I found that fits all the data if I'm going to
2: If anything it sounds like a gradient of enthusiasm. Yeah. Okay. That that is a perfect way to put it I think. And that really carries for any form of if you're geeky about one weird chunk of history or if you're geeky yeah. about yeah okay it could really be just how into it you are gene
3: simmons the tongue waggling guy from kiss was complaining and i think this is a side effect of it was complaining a couple years ago about how with music being the way it is and downloads and sort of distributed music the concept of the rock star is dead Hmm. because you don't have this artist with universal appeal anymore Mm -hmm. and he was complaining about that i think that's great because now we have a much more diverse marketplace. Nobody's dominating the market anymore, but now there's room for a a lot of stuff that there just wasn't room for before because everybody wanted to make the millions and millions and millions of dollars.
2: Yeah. I don't know if I'd completely argue that the idea of a rock star is dead.
3: I also agree, but I, like, I don't think he was right. But that was what he said. But it
2: presents a good opportunity and a yeah. segue for everybody else. And don't. I
3: think inextricably linked the fact that the market has become so diverse that we were allowed to be really into something obscure. Because we have access to a community that we didn't have access to before.
2: Yeah. The weird thing is, though, is the way marketing has kind of tried to go, okay, this is the thing that everyone will like now. Yeah. Doesn't really hold anymore. Because Mm -hmm. what everyone will like now will be their own little special corner of the interwebs. and. Yeah. So, hmm.
0: With that, we went to you guys. We wanted to know what you had to say about this question. What was that turning point that pushed geeky stuff into becoming mainstream stuff? Casey Rochefort had this to say, I think adapting those fantasy books into film, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, never seen any of
1: them. Suddenly it was hip to be square. (laughs) That's so funny. My boss was talking about her niece. She was 19 or something. She made a mini documentary about Doctor Who collecting. And her avenue to getting into it was the Harry Potter books. It's hard to deny that that was not the entree for a whole generation of children, as well as adults, into the fantasy genre. Because it was powerful. And next, Kayla Ritchie, she had to say, when it became clear that geek is synonymous with has skills other than socializing, instead of simply has no social skills. And when those skills became the fuel for the economy, e.g. when everyone in the workplace needed his own IT department. Eh, that's interesting. Geeks did get invited in on the t- into the table, right? Into a polite society. They
0: became part of any business ecosystem where you knew that you needed somebody who knew about computers to get that stuff going. In fact, What we saw in the 90s were some of these nerdy computer guys were the new multi-billionaires. We're talking about the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs. Right. These were not the guys that were considered the cool guys or the rich guys. We always thought of these barons of industry puffing out their chests, cigar-filled rooms. They were probably jocks in college at some Ivy League school. This kind of turned that over. This was people that got there because they had technical knowledge as well as business knowledge. And they didn't look the way you expected to see these barons of industry to look. I mean, Bill Gates still kind of looks like a nerdy guy. Yeah.
1: Well, to say nothing of the fact that IT is everywhere, in every office, in the gas station, there's got to be an IT guy to work on the systems in the back end. So almost everywhere in in the working life has to have the nerdy guy who probably loves Lord of the Rings. So our good friend and fellow panelist Paul Rue had this
0: to say, it seems to me that the moment being a nerd went mainstream was pretty much the moment when we let women into the clubhouse. I tried to zero in on a cultural phenomenon that marked the point when the whole thing changed, and I keep coming back to the success of Buffy the
1: Vampire Slayer and Xena Warrior Princess,
0: series that pretty much about female characters primarily for a female audience.
1: Yeah, that's such an enormous milestone to consider the fact that women make up more than half of the population, and with sci-fi and fantasy, there's always been the uh, strapping guy with the sword and the woman with the bikini, and there was always been a lot of sexism in the traditional geek cultures, but certainly in the last thirty years or so that's opened up an awful lot Andrew Kapelish, he said things took a turn for the geeky better when the first X-Men movie hit the theaters after X-Men came out it really legitimized superheroes in a way unseen since Batmania momentum created by Keaton and killed by Clooney
0: do we really want to blame George Clooney for that Oh come on even he's owned the fact that that movie sucks <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that when we're going to really talk about what ruins a movie, the star is almost always not that thing.
1: Yeah, maybe the star underperforms, which I think Clooney couldn't do much but chew on the scenery for that particular movie. But
0: what's the script? Y- yeah. You can't really do anything. You're not going to create a dynamite performance that wins Oscars if the script is terrible and if the direction is bad. Right. You have material in front of you that you have to work with, and you have a director telling you, do this, don't do that. Yeah, you can play to an actor's strengths or they can try something interesting and new. But again, if the material is bad, you're just never going to get that performance. I think Schumacher and a lot of other things are
1: really the problem with those Batman movies. It was just a disingenuous movie to begin. But I would agree, X-Men did get a lot of people interested in characters that maybe if you'd missed the Saturday Morning Fox cartoon, that they wouldn't have known before. But certainly, I think Wolverine is... Isn't Hugh Jackman now in the record for the actor that has played the same character in a franchise of movies the most times? He like beat out Bond. He beat out Sean Jean Connery's Honnery? Bond. Yes. That's
0: shocking. Yeah. I can see that. I think that he's appeared in a number of movies, sometimes just in a cameo. Yep. He had yep. maybe 30 seconds in X-Men First Class and right. he's coming back for Days of Future Past. Right. It's kind of amazing when we look at this current run of superhero movies that I think we can say that it started with the Spider-Man and X-Men franchises in the early 2000s, late 90s. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. there was this aesthetic that came out of the Batman movies that everyone wanted to copy. The Flash television show that was on TV. Yep. It did everything it could to look like the Tim Burton version of Gotham City. It had a quasi Danny Elfman theme yes. song. <laughs> and the costume itself was basically red Batman sans ears. Mm-hmm. It was doing everything it could to bounce off of that look, of that feel. And a lot of the superhero stuff at the time, that was getting into theaters, at least. I mean, there are things like, you know, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, which didn't do that. Right. Sort of a shoot that darker look and right. did a more of a lighter television view to Superman. And that was probably the last time that we saw Superman as we recognize him from childhood mm-hmm. on the big screen, even if it's a television screen. Right. So... <laughs> But the late 90s, early 2000s brought in a run of movies that were interesting because they took the character seriously, but also understood what was at the core of what made this character last, and was able to translate that to a major audience in a way that the comics hadn't. People understood for the first time why Peter Parker was a compelling character, or why the X-Men are cool characters, or why this is a neat concept. Wolverine was sort of a C-list character that only comic fans knew about mm-hmm. for a long time. Now Hugh Jackman's Wolverine is an A-list character that people recognize on site. Right. Spider-Man right. was a parade float to most people. Right. Spider-Man had appeared in cartoons for most of our childhoods, from the 60s up until the 90s. And we knew him on site, but we really weren't fans of him unless you were, like me, reading comic books. Right. So the Tobey Maguire... Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies really catapulted that character into a whole new level of
1: success. If I were to chart what is different about that movie from its predecessors is that was the time was around the creation of a very convincing CGI. And of course, the movies that really started manipulating them started in, you know, 98, 99 with Matrix. That was around the time when movies were visually compelling and hell you didn't need to know about anything about the characters it just had to look badass. Suddenly the technology had caught up to where these characters had been in the comic right. books for a long time that there
0: are things that Spider-Man especially does, especially Spider-Man, especially yes. Spider-Man. There's things you just can't ask a stuntman to do right. because it's one it's dangerous. And it's also physically impossible without crippling this guy. And there's only so much you can do with wires (laughs) because Spider-Man is an acrobatic character that flips around. And suddenly through CGI, you don't have to put a number of stuntmen at risk that way. I mean, look at the Broadway show. They had to shut down how many times over injuries. So Paul Merrill had this to say, I'd say the first glimpses of it began with the first Tim Burton Batman movie in 1989. The first time a serious take on superheroes was a
1: mainstream success.
0: After the first Spider-Man movie, it was here to say. I absolutely yeah. agree. Yeah.
1: And Tim Batson, I like this answer. Weezer's Blue Album was big. Yeah, they, they talked about looking like Buddy Holly, looking like a nerd, having the Dungeon Master's Guide, you know, a part of the songs in there. I can, that, certainly, that certainly was the mainstreaming of a certain type of geek. I'll give, him, I'll give him a half star for that. Half star to Tim. George Griminella said, I don't know. I
0: think the effective point may be the expansion of the internet to non-techies, non-geeks people and their immersion into what had essentially been a geek haven. By appropriating the tech, they absorbed part of the culture, and that was what primed the creation of films like Lord of the Rings. And I don't think Buffy and Xena are examples of geeks letting girls into the clubhouse any more than Red Sonja was. They did
1: create a geeky subculture of their own, but girl geeks were still a thing apart, and still are in some cases. And Paul Rue, our friend, responded to that, and he said, the thing is though, Red Sonja is a male fantasy, the independent woman who can be tamed by the right man, And originally so was Xena, a retread of the whole, imagine if women ran the place and treated men as the slave's chestnut. But the respective Buffy and Xena TV series were very much female-driven fantasy figures in which the leads were given a lot of agency and the stories were very much about them and driven by them. And that said, I agree with the rise of the internet played the big part. So it's, this has already came up before, it's hard to underestimate the idea that fantasy became a genre that became more inclusive. And certainly, once we expanded from fantasy basically going down to just Dungeons and Dragons. Then we saw lots of different writers and lots of different movies and television shows expanding into this area where the potential audience was as large as anyone who could enjoy something like a Lord of the Rings movie.
0: I think this is a bit of a chicken and the an egg. And I think it isn't one or the other. I think it's both working on each other simultaneously, which is that you have an audience that is becoming more diverse and you're becoming writers that are creating more diverse material. Hmm. As the audience becomes more diverse, there's certainly a demand for the sort of material out there that will cater to a wider audience. For the longest time, I was in that sweet spot of this is the group that geek culture caters to. Right. I was 16 to 25. I was white <laughs> male. I was pretty much everything that came out of comic books, out of science fiction, out of movies that had geek things to them were written most explicitly for me. Right. So as it became more diverse through things like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, where you had stronger, more compelling female characters. I don't mean just in the sense that they are characters that are role models, but also more interesting female characters, more varied female characters. And this is where filmmakers and creative people like Joss Whedon came in, where if Mm. you look at Firefly, there are four different main female characters. That's true. And they're all different they're not the same, you know, tough broad all the way across right. that you see in the exact same way. They're all different. They're all interesting. They all have strengths, and they're all different kinds of strengths. They give them the same kind of diversity that we usually only see given to male characters. True. Where not everyone in the group is Mal Reynolds, that you mm-hmm. have somebody like a Wash, too, who's kind of funny and goofy. But on the other side, when you have female characters, you can have a character like Kaylee as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's really good at this one thing, you know, fixing the ship the same way that Wash is good. At flying the ship, Mm -hmm. but they have their skills, but they're also very comedic. They're also very light. There are a lot of fun characters and that kind of diversity where like you mentioned the cover of these fantasy novels where it's just the woman in the metal bikini holding onto the leg of some (laughs) barbarian, barbarian (laughs) man. That's what it was is these were female characters used largely as props, right? These were not characters in their own rights. These were not people over which the plot really affected them, and they didn't affect the plot. They were just sort of there to be a prize for a male character to win, defend, or avenge. So when we get this greater degree of inclusion in our fantasy and science fiction, then, yeah, we're going to get a better audience. And that we get an audience that, again, grows that demand at the same time, that we have more people clamoring for more stuff like this, more interesting female characters. There are female characters that were injected into Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit movies that weren't there originally. And a lot of it comes from the fact that when Tolkien wrote these in the 30s through the 50s, you know, the audience was very different. We've grown as a culture in that way and say, you know what, there should be some female characters. I understand, like in Game of Thrones, that this is a patriarchal culture. Mm -hmm. However, there are still women in it. Right. There's still half of the people that exist in this world. And and there are
1: powerful women in it as well. Yeah, I, I don't know if you or I had ever actually mentioned this, but the reoccurrence of Star Wars on the scene probably didn't hurt either. Certainly when George Lucas crafted Episode One, not only to be a continuation for the existing fans, the fans that were already grown-ups by that time, he of course added the characters for the kids. You know, he added the fact that Anakin Skywalker was there and Padme was also basically a kid, essentially. He added these elements to be inclusive towards that audience and, and of mm, course well, Jar Jar Binks <laughs> and Jar Jar Binks yes i didn't i didn't want to say him you made me you made me say it mike that drew a lot of kids 15 and under into something that they maybe they wouldn't have watched by solely by virtue of the fact that it was just the hugest cultural phenomenon that was happening in 1999 so we shouldn't overlook the prequel trilogy even as odious as it is to some of us jack brinkman had this to say geek culture isn't
0: mainstream because geek culture doesn't exist. It's all just a marketing deal trying to compartmentalize a bunch of disparate hobbyists into a nice, tiny demographic in order to sell them things. This sounds a bit like what our good friend Sam Mulvey was saying before, Mm -hmm. that we're talking about a culture that doesn't exist. I disagree with Sam and with Jack on this. I think there is a culture there. I think it's possible that culture doesn't necessarily exist in the same way now because there was a certain amount of self-selection that used to go into this it used to be something that would exist on the margins of popular culture that fantasy movies existed but they were cheap they were on cable like tbs and they starred nobody (laughs) and had budgets of nothing you never were going to see a lord of the rings back then but it was only by making this something that everybody loved i think there's this shared culture of bullying that just isn't there anymore there's a shared culture of Not knowing who your friends are and speaking in code so you can find your people because nobody knew who Gollum was or who Tony Stark was. Now everybody knows these things. And I'd say we're the better for it. I think perhaps geek culture doesn't exist in the same way that it did in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s. But I think it still exists. And I think that we can see this through things like Comic-Con. There are a lot of folks that go to Comic-Con that are able to let their freak flag fly Mm -hmm. and dress up like Luke Cage Power Man (laughs) and be around people who do know these weird sort of obscure things. But like Sam said, and this is a point of agreement I have with him, that geekdom isn't so much built on a foundation of science fiction, fantasy and a love of technology as it is of love of
1: loving things. Sure. Yeah. And I would say probably the biggest moment for where my conception of what geekdom was, there was an image meme on the internet several years ago that had a picture of four or five guys, white guys in a room that are filling out their fantasy football rosters. And all it said was Dungeons and Dragons for jocks. And I was thinking about that and that blew it way out of the water. Because yes, that is obviously geekdom. That is the same type of geekdom. And all that it says. Maybe what Jack Brinkman was referring to here is just that maybe he thinks that of himself as a specific kind of nerd and he feels like the other people who are called nerds or geeks aren't really the authentic, the no true geek, if you will. I just think that geek has become so inclusive now that some people might have felt left out, the people who really suffered for it.
0: Yeah, I think that certainly I would not in high school let on that I was a big fan of comic books because it was putting a target on your back and letting people know, hey, this is a guy you can bully. That's not the case anymore. In fact, people use a lot of the geek vernacular to talk about things that are not traditionally quote-unquote geeky, like sports geeks. Somebody who's able to recite facts and figures and let you know who played in what game, who was the manager of what baseball team in 1976. (laughs) That's really geeky stuff, and that comes from the same place that the love of Star Trek, someone who's able to recite, you know, who it was exactly that Captain Kirk saved or rescued on. Rigel 7 in episode 25 of Star Trek. I mean, that's the same thing, yeah. is I love this thing to the point that I'm going to use this portion of my brain to build a mini organic encyclopedia. I'm like a mentat of <laughs> nonsense fun.
1: I drink the juice and the juice stains my lips.
0: I love that stuff. And I, I love loving things. I love being around people who love things. And one of the things that I get out of Comic-Con and what I like about geek culture is that these conventions for the longest time were the only place where you could, a bit like a moth drawn to the flame, find other people that were like you. Because mm-hmm. there was no other method for finding people who were as passionate and as knowledgeable about things like comic books or science fiction or any of these myriad of geeky things right. as there is now. And that actually gets to what Bethany Turner says, where she says, I think the internet itself is a huge contributor to the victory of geekdom. We can connect with others in our fandoms, and in doing so, organize events where we can get together and meet more people who think like we do. People unashamedly share their interests online because they know that there's others out there who appreciate it. And I think that has made the world so much safer for people who in the past may have wanted to dip their toe into geek culture, but were too afraid of being bullied to risk it. Now they know they're not alone, and it's okay to enjoy superhero science fiction and fantasy because a lot of people do, and the entertainment industry takes us seriously now.
1: Truly, it is good to be a geek. I totally agree. And her penultimate point there was it is the entertainment industry taking it seriously, which is part of the thing that propagates it, right? It is New Line Cinema putting in $400 million to fund... insane trilogy from a New Zealand director with his own special effects team to make a three movie deal to fund and and shoot at once. It is that it's the money to produce the marketing and the ability for the people who gatekeepers. It's the ability for the gatekeepers to essentially say, we know there are people out here that can do this and we will spend money letting authors and creators work and create these shared worlds. That's really the signpost of the fact that geekdom had won.
0: With that in mind, I think it's time for our big announcement, because, of course, this is a .5 episode of Radio vs. the Martians, which means that first we're going to announce what the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians is going to be.
1: Our next panel episode is, I'm happy to say, it is on Nintendo, a company that you all know probably from childhood, That once was a Japanese playing card company and rose to prominence to basically become synonymous with video gaming in the home. We should expect that panel in the month of May, and I'm very excited to start it off. But we mentioned that this 0.5 episode is a
0: very special episode of Radio vs. the Martians, and here's why. It's the last one. We're not going to be doing these anymore. Don't cry. It's fine. <laughs> but we love the feedback that we've gotten from you folks through Radio versus the Mailbag, and we are going to continue it as a series of blog posts. That's the end of the sad news. Here's the good news. In the absence of these 0.5 episodes, we are going to start doing monthly panel episodes you no longer have to wait 60 days to get another dose of Radio versus the Martians. You're going to get it each and every month from now until we die, <laughs> I guess. From now on, monthly episodes with us and two panelists talking about all the wonderful geeky, fucked up, great things from geek culture, non-geek culture, movies, science fiction, professional wrestling, comic books, all the stuff you love each and every month. No more waiting every month on time. With that in mind, and with a lot of work ahead of us, we hope to see you next month and every month after that for Radio Versus the Martians. Radio Versus the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVsTheMartians.com.